Well, good evening. It's good to be here again this year. Uh, we missed last year. We missed being at this conference. We were out in Colorado instead. That's a, uh, uh, a family out there had been sponsoring the Bible, Bible camp every year for many, many years, and it was the couple that introduced us to the grace message, and we have been promising we were going to come, and last year we finally did it. So, And that's where we were. But we're glad to be here again this year, and thank want to give thanks to this church and uh, for ha- holding this uh, pastor and all those in the church here for holding this conference every year. I know it's a lot of work doing this, but it's also very edifying, isn't it, to bring the believers together and hear the word of God preached. Uh, the subject I've been given is Galatians chapter 5, 1 through 6. We can open our Bibles there. And uh, thank you. Galatians 5, 1 through 6. And... Stand fast in the liberty is what they've, uh, the title that was given to it. So let's read these verses. Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Behold, I, Paul, say unto you, that if you be circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. But I testify again to every man that is circumcised that he is a debtor to do the whole law. Christ has become no effect unto you, whatsoever, whosoever you are, justified by the law, you are fallen from grace. For we through the Spirit wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Jesus Christ neither circumcision availeth anything, but uncircumcision through faith which worketh by love. Father, we just thank you for this truth of the grace of God in the Lord Christ. And we just pray that you'll open our eyes and ears of understanding, Lord, for the truth that you have for us in your word. In the wonderful and thrilling name of Jesus Christ, amen. Liberty. What is liberty? And we look at that in this country and we talk a lot about it. You know, we have the Declaration of Independence and it talks about that. uh, We talk a lot about liberty and freedom in this country. But what is the idea of liberty and the way the world looks at it? The world looks at liberty as something that I'm free to do whatever I want. Isn't that their concept of it? Uh, don't we have a lot of different lawsuits in this country on, on uh, who has freedom of speech and freedom to do this or freedom to do that and all kinds of silly things have come out in the last few years and the idea is that people think that they're free and liberty to do whatever they want. The Bible does not talk about that kind of freedom. Uh, now, we're going to talk about that a little, little bit more, but first we'll look at stand fast. Paul starts this out, and he starts out, stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free. Stand fast, and that, that's the whole concept in Galatians, that the, the, the believers in Galatia were being, being influenced by what are called the Judaizers. They were coming along and saying, yeah, we believe in Christ, you can believe in Christ, and you have Christ, but you also have to keep the law. And circumcision became the issue at that time. You have to do the works of the law. Well, if they took circumcision, then they have to take the whole thing, don't they? <laughs> the whole law. And we'll look at that too. But stand fast. What are you saying? Stand fast in the liberty and do not be brought again into bondage. Well, what does it mean to stand fast? It means to be constant, to persevere, to stand firm, to be unwavering. Uh, in American history, we have two different gentlemen that we can refer to. One was called Old Hickory. He became President Andrew Jackson. He was a he was a general before that, and he got his nickname of Old Hickory 
because you couldn't move him. They could bend him and they could push him and they could pull him around, but he always snapped back into place. And that's what a hickory stick does, doesn't it? You know, it's, it's a very, uh, that's why they make a good switch. Uh, <laughs> uh, they, they always come back, you know, and, and that was uh, old hickory and he became President Jackson. But then during the Civil War, on the Confederate side, the Confederate state, there was a man named Jackson also, wasn't there? And they called him Stonewall Jackson because he couldn't be moved. They, matter of fact, if he had fought for the Union, that war would have been a lot shorter. It's true. Stonewall Jackson with an inferior force and inadequate supplies and lack of time ran up and down the Shenandoah Valley and stymied the Union forces at every turn with forced marches. And uh, they thought he had a huge army and he had a very small army. And he would fight a battle one day in one end of the Shenandoah Valley and fight a battle the next day at the other end. And they didn't know how he did it. The, I mean, the forced marches and things they went through. But he gained that reputation of Stonewall because he would not give in. He would stay where he was and fight the battle. That's what he was assigned to do. And that's what Paul's talking about here. Being steadfast. Stand fast. Be strong. Don't be moved. What we have in Christ. He says it again this evening. Stand fast in Christ, doesn't he? Where he talks about putting on the armor of God. But he says the liberty here, stand fast in the liberty which Christ has made us free and be not entangled again with the yoke with the yoke of bondage. And the yoke of bondage he's talking about, as Pastor Kurtz pointed out, he's talking about the law. He's talking about the law, isn't he? Um, as a matter of fact, verse 24 of chapter 4, which things are an allegory, and uh, we were explained what an allegory is in the two covenants, but he goes on the rest of that verse, the one from the Mount Sinai, which gendereth the bondage, which is Hagar. Right there he says, the law gives birth to bondage. It enslaves. People are enslaved by it because, and the law sounds good. And why was the law given? Why was the law given to Israel? What was the law was? Paul says the law was added because of transgression. But what was the law added to? You ever thought about that? It was added to the Abrahamic covenant. God had already made a promise to Abraham; he's going to inherit the world. Glad Pastor Kurtz brought that. We don't have to go back and look at that because that's such an amazing verse. And uh, God, Abraham's going to inherit the world. His descendants are going to rule it. It's that simple. But the Mosaic law was added to it as a temporary covenant that would be done away with. It was never meant to be permanent, was it? Now, the principles of the Ten Commandments, those will never go away. We know that. And even the principles of the law. And the law is good and just and, and holy, Paul says in Romans chapter 7. And on the opposite side of that, man is unjust and unholy. And unrighteous. And the law was given to prove that. It says we've been taken out from under that, under that, and why I want to go back to that liberty Paul speaks of for the believer equals liberty or freedom to serve God. Let's go to Romans chapter six. Romans chapter six and 
when and these are passages that you believers a lot, many times are directed to, to to learn and encourage to look at these these verses and try to understand them. Romans chapter 6, starting at verse 10. For in that he died, in that Christ died, he died to sin once. But in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Now the importance of this is in Christ, our position in Christ, this is us also. Isn't it? Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in its lust thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of un unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. You know, before you were saved, when a person in an unsaved condition, they cannot do this. Oh, they can be very religious. They can appear very pious. They can, they can do all kinds of religious things. And they can even appear righteous to other men and women. But they cannot serve God. That's the whole point. God didn't say, I'm going to set you free to do what you want. He set you free to serve Him. Because that's what man was called to do to start with. That's what man was created to do. That's why God put Adam in the garden to tend it and to care for it. He was a servant of God. God was going to give him rule over the earth, but he was to serve God, not Adam. And that's what Paul's saying here. We're delivered from the bondage of sin, and the law cannot do that. The law, what, what does the, the Bible tell us the law? Paul tells a lot about the law, doesn't he? In Romans chapter 3, he says, by the law is the knowledge of sin. By the law is the knowledge of sin. Law points out our sin. It convicts our conscience. It shows us our wrongdoing. It shows us our need for a Savior. Because the law cannot help us. It can't do one thing to help us to save ourselves or to make us righteous. You know, I think of one of the illustrations I heard many years ago. I like it. And, you know, some young fellows went down to the beach and they're going to go swimming. And they went out and got caught in a riptide. The thing is, they get to that beach, they went right past the sign and said, no swimming, danger. And they're out there yelling, help, save us, help. And a passerby hears them and runs down to them and says, looks out there and sees they're drowning. He says, it says no swimming. Read the sign, it says no swimming. Help, save us. It says no swimming. Doesn't help a bit, does it? They already figured that part out by the time they... They need a Savior, don't they? The law is to point out our need for a Savior. And that's what we need. The liberties Paul, Paul speaks of then is the... The, uh, the liberty, the freedom to serve Christ. It's that simple. You know, sometimes, have you ever had somebody say something that maybe, well, a, a true story. A couple I knew many years ago, they went on a uh, uh, a riverboat that took a cruise up and down the Missouri River from Kansas City area. And along with that came your dinner. 
and along with the dinner came a drink, cocktail. And when it came time to ask them what they drank, they said, well, they didn't want, they just wanted water. And the lady said something to the effect, we don't drink, we're Christians. And the waitress became very huffy with her and said, well, Christians can have a drink if they want. And later she asked me, she says, what should I, how should I answer? I didn't know how to answer. Just tell her you're free not to. You don't have to. You see, what happened there, when she said that, it brought conviction on that lady's life. You want to know why the world does not like biblical Christianity? Because it convicts them. It, when you say, I don't do these certain things because I believe they're wrong because of your conviction, you don't have to do it because of the law, because if you're doing it for the law, then it's the wrong, wrong attitude, the wrong motives, isn't it? But we do it because we serve the living Savior. The flesh serves sin, period. The spirit serves God. And you cannot serve God in the flesh. You can't do it. Do not become encumbered by the law, uh, the law keeping, what he says in verse, uh, back to Back to Galatians. Here I'm still in Romans. Uh, trying to read that verse. But verse 1 says, Don't be entangled again. Don't be encumbered with the yoke of bondage, with the law. Don't let it drag you down. Don't be encumbered with that. The law demands. It does. It's a, it's a slave master. And it puts you under the slave. And then sin's very demanding also. And the, and the law enslaves. Grace through the Spirit sets free. You know, Paul in the book of Galatians, in Galatians chapter 3, as uh, again, Pastor Kurtz pointed out, did a lot of groundwork for me. <laughs> Appreciate that. He said, uh, uh, I want to know one thing. Did you begin in the spirit or in the flesh? Did you become a believer through the, through the works of the flesh or through, through, through faith? That's what he asked him. And then he asked him, are you going to finish this then? You started in the spirit? Are you going to finish it in the flesh? That was his question. Do you want to continue on? Or did you begin in the Spirit and you're going to end in the Spirit? Well, there's no, no, no choice. You can't finish it. The flesh just can't do what the Spirit does. It's that simple. And man is spiritually dead. And the idea of death, we have to understand what death is. Death is separation. It's, it's the absence of life. It's not, it's not necessarily to cease to exist. We look at a dead body and say, well, it has no life in it. Well, there's no life there, but the body still exists. But when it comes to, to spiritual death, let's use an example first so we understand it. What is he? We can, <laughs> actually, what Pastor answered was absence of cold, but that's not true. Heat is something. Cold is nothing. It doesn't exist. There is no such thing as cold. We use the term. You can have less heat or more heat, but you can't have less cold. Cold is only the absence of heat. That's all it is. That's why there's an absolute zero. You can only go down. You take all the heat away, and it's minus 300 and something or something like that. I don't know. Some degree Fahrenheit. But there is no such thing as cold. We, we use it as a relative term, but it's the absence of heat. What is darkness? It's the absence of light. When it comes to spiritual death, it's the absence of God's life. 
Death is the absence of life. It's a separation. And that's why people are said to be spiritually dead. Why Paul in Ephesians chapter 2 said, ye were spiritually, you were dead in your sin, trespassing in sin. You were spiritually dead. Because the opposite, there's no life there. There's no such thing as dualism. An equal, uh, if you understand the concept of dualism that some people get into, there's a uh, two entities, one good, one bad, that are fighting together. You're trying to find the harmony in that. This is the essential principle of New Age teaching. Trying to find the harmony between the two opposites. Actually, there aren't two. People try to put that to Satan and God. Satan is not the opposite equal of God. He is not eternal. He is a creature. He has been created. And God is absolutely sovereign and absolutely holy. Satan would like you to believe that he's as powerful as God and he's just on the other hand. That is not true, is it? That's New Age teaching, isn't it? The, uh, the, in the East, it's the yin and the yang theory. It's, and it's that finding everything and bringing it into harmony. There is no harmony with sin and righteousness. And that's what we have to understand. That's why we need a Savior, because uh, mankind, Adam's lost race, is helpless and hopeless apart from the person of Jesus Christ and his shed blood for our sins. Our efforts in the flesh quench the work of the Spirit. Verse 2, chapter 5. Behold, I, Paul, say unto you then, if you be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. Verse 4. Christ has become of no effect unto you, whosoever you are, just of you are justified of the law, you are fallen from grace. Did he say they were losing their salvation? I don't think so. They just moved away from grace and the, and the, 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 the idea of serving God through faith, walking by faith and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit who indwells us. If we want to do it in the flesh, I believe God said, okay, you want to do it in the flesh? Go do it in the flesh. And you reap what you sow. Because we have no spiritual power. We have no power to serve him. We can be very religious. We're good at it. We are. We're terribly good at it. And there's a lot of religious people out there that think that somehow they're going to get to heaven because they've done enough. And the thought crossed my mind when Pastor Kurth, I couldn't preach this message, I guess, if he hadn't come first. <laughs> Pastor Kurth mentioned cheap grace, that some accuse us of having cheap grace, and the tremendous price that was paid. And I, as I, he said that, something dawned on me. I never thought about it. I've heard that term a lot. I've heard it used. I've been accused of it. What they're really saying is, your grace is cheap because it doesn't cost you anything. You have to pay. You have to contribute. Think about it, what they're saying. Isn't that what that really means, that term really means? If somebody says that's cheap grace, that you can just believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved, that's what they say. And there's no works involved, and you can't do anything except believe and to trust in Him. And they'll say that's cheap grace. You think you're getting something for free here that you don't have to pay anything for, and it's not going to cost you anything. That's exactly the point of grace. If it costs one iota of anything, it's not grace. It's death. 
the grace of God and thank God for it because no one be saved apart from the grace of God. And even all of the Old Testament, all of, all of the kingdom program, apart from the blood of Christ. Now we know there was works involved under the Mosaic Law. I think there'll be works involved in the kingdom program. But those works in themselves add nothing to the salvation. God just asks those to be done as a work of faith. But it's the blood of Christ that saves. There is no other salvation. For any man, woman, or child that has ever lived, is alive today, or that will ever live, Jesus Christ alone is the way, the, way, the truth, and the life. Our efforts in the flesh quench the work of the Spirit. And if we are doing it in the flesh, if we're doing it as religion, there is no spiritual reward, there's no spiritual power, and there's no spiritual growth. That's one of the interesting things about the, the Bema Seat, the judgment seat of Christ that we're going to stand before someday as believers. Not for salvation, but for reward. I fully believe this. If your motive of serving Christ is to earn rewards, there's no reward, no reward for it. The motive of serving Christ is to serve God and to glorify Him. And what's done in faith, then there are rewards for that. But if we're seeking after rewards, then we, we're trying to do it in the flesh again. We're trying to bring glory to ourselves. And we're not to bring glory to ourselves. We're to bring glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the glorious one. He's the King of kings. He's the Prince of peace. He is the Lord of lords. He is God. Isn't he? Yes, he is. God himself, the Son of God, came and took on human flesh and came in the, in the likeness of human flesh to serve the creature. The Creator Himself came to serve the holy creature who had essentially destroyed Himself and had no hope. You know, in Ephesians, when Paul says that the Gentiles, when, when Israel fell, when Israel fell, that left the Gentiles. If they were left without hope, what happened to the Gentiles? He says they were without hope and without God, and they were strangers from the covenants of Israel, weren't they? And the commonwealth of Israel. They had no hope. It's only the grace of God that he's reached down, and the Jew and Gentile alike, without, without distinction, that he has offered salvation today. And Paul says, stand fast in that truth. That's what he's saying to stand fast in. Stand fast in the Lord Jesus Christ, in the truth that salvation is by grace through faith. It's not of works which any man should boast. And that nothing else can be added to that because everything that tried to add to salvation is a, trying to add works, add, trying to add to what Jesus Christ has already done. It's saying that I can't do it and we can't do it. And that's why Paul says, stand fast in the liberty. Because if you don't, if we do not stand fast in the liberty which, which Christ has set us free, we will be entangled with all kinds of error. Going back into the yoke of bondage will lead us to error. Where does this stop? Some of these things sound really good. A lot of false doctrines actually sound scriptural because false doctrines, they go to a scripture and they read it, don't they? And then they expound on it and they can bring a logical conclusion to these things. And one of the ways, you know what we do and we teach on cults at Brigham Bible Institute, the first half of the semester, we go back and go over the fundamentals of the faith. 
and then it's easy to spot a cult. We go back and go over those fundamentals because they're so essential and show how that how they're they're mis, misrepresented and how often cults will say they believe the same thing that we do when they really don't. Lordship salvation. There's a popular radio preacher today that he says to, to have assurance of your salvation, he's got ten points he goes through. I believe the Bible gives us one point. He has ten points. You know. Have you been baptized? Have you joined the church? You love God? I'm serious. This is the, the things that he brings. And all, all these ten points cause a person to look at themselves. Well, have I done enough? You'll never live up to it. I believe there's only one way we can have assurance of our salvation. You believe you're a lost sinner? you violated God's holiness and are worthy of judgment? That's the first qualification. And there's only one more. That's to believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins. Those sins. He died for them and God, he was buried and God has raised him from the dead and he is the one mediator between God and men. And through his blood, if you'll trust in him, that means more than believe about it. It means trust in him. Put your faith in him. Your confidence in him. The trust in what he has done alone. That is sufficient for your salvation. And that's the only way you'll ever have assurance. If you have doubts, it's because you think that Christ's blood wasn't enough. That's the only thing you can doubt. We, to add any aspect of the law to grace, Paul says, verse 3, For I testify again to every man that be circumcised that he is a debtor to do the whole law. If you want to add one aspect of law, if you want to do it by the law, actually, technically, if a person would keep the whole law and never violate the law, God says that he would, in Romans chapter 2, that he would give them eternal life. The, the catch is, though, he, he also comes along in chapter 3 and says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Nobody lives up to that because we're all Adam's kinfolk. And Eve's kin, you know, we all come from them and, and that's our trouble. And no one. But he says, Leviticus, I'm going to go back. We'll go back and look at a few of these verses. Leviticus chapter 18. Have, have you ever heard people tell you... Um, there's one group especially that like to worship on Saturdays. They want to keep the law and keep the Sabbath and so forth. And they'll say, well, the rest, some of these other laws, and they keep dietary laws, but they'll say, some of these other laws, they're, they're done away with in Christ, but the moral law, you have to keep all those points, the Ten Commandments. You ever heard things like that? You know what? That's a smorgasbord. They're just picking what they want. But look at what Leviticus chapter 18 Verse 5 and what, uh, the Lord told through Moses. Verse 4, you shall do my judgments and keep my ordinances to walk therein. I am the Lord your God. 
You shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, which if a man do, he shall live in them. I am the Lord. So if you're going to do them, you'll live in them, but you have to do them all. Deuteronomy chapter 27. See, Paul was referring back to these passages of Scripture. Deuteronomy chapter 27 and verse 26. This is the curses read from Mount Evil before the, the blessings were, were read. And they, they had the, the curses and the blessings read from each side. And, and this was done at this time. And when he got done with this, cursed, verse 26, Cursed be he that conformeth not to all the words of this law to do them, and all the people shall say, Amen. In other words, Israel was all to agree with that. He says, Cursed everyone, everyone who does not do them. Let's look at Nehemiah chapter 9. Nehemiah. You know, if you read through your through the Bible, when you get through the book of Nehemiah, you've read through the whole New Old Testament historically, chronologically, the history of it. And then the Psalms and the, and the Proverbs and all those things go back into that. And that, that's an interesting, interesting thing to, to know, and it's important, actually important to know. Nehemiah chapter 9, though, when Nehemiah went back and he built the wall, and um, there was the confession of the priest and so forth, and, and he goes back through a history of Israel. And he gets to verse 29. And testifieth against them, that thou mightest bring them again unto this day, yet they dealt proudly and hearkened not unto thy commandments. Talk about it. Israel's history. They went, he went back and happened to come out of Egypt and all these things. He comes back to this place. Yet they dealt proudly and hearkened not unto thy commandments, but sinned against thy judgments, which if a man do, he shall live in them, and withdrew the shoulder and hardened their neck, and would not hear. Israel refused to hear. But the important part, he said again, against the law, they would not live in them, that they chose not to keep the whole law. And this, because it's why, it's why Israel ended up out of the land. It's why Jerusalem was destroyed. And this is what Nehemiah, he's, he's there rebuilding the city, you know, rebuilding the wall when he brings this up. Um, Ezra chapter, we're not going to look at those, Ezekiel chapter, we will look at Ezekiel chapter 20, and then we've got to go on, Ezekiel chapter 20. What I'm pointing out, Paul was taking something from the Old Testament that the prophets had brought, Moses had brought, Nehemiah had brought, Ezekiel brought, and pointed out to Israel and his other places also, but these are, are very clear, Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 11. And it's another history of rebellious Israel. Verse 11, And I gave them my statutes and showed them my judgments, which if a man do, he shall even live in them. This is God talking what happened. He's given a history of this through the prophet Ezekiel. Um, verse 13, But the house of Israel rebelled against me in the wilderness. They walked not in my statutes, and they despised my judgments, which if a man do, he shall even live in them. And my Sabbath they greatly polluted. Then I said, I would pour out my fury on them in the wilderness and consume them. Verse 21 of the same chapter. Notwithstanding, the children rebelled against me. They walked not in my statutes, neither kept my judgments to do them. Where, which of a man should do them, even live in them. They polluted my Sabbath, and I, when I said, I would pour out my fury upon them to accomplish my anger against them in the wilderness. You know, the law brings judgment. It can bring blessing if they're obeyed, but over and over in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy, as we were looking at, 
Blessings were promised to Israel for obedience, curses for disobedience. And he says, if you're going to keep the law, you've got to keep it all. You don't get to pick and choose which part you want. In Christ, the law has been done away, Paul says. You're not under law, but under grace today. Don't try to go back under the law. And don't let anybody else put you back under the law. That's Paul's message. Stand fast in the liberty which you can set free. And don't let anybody entangle you with that. Why let them come in and put a yoke on you that they, Israel couldn't bear? And now you want to bear it? Israel couldn't stand. It pointed out their sin, didn't it? As a matter of fact, the law will be reinstated during the millennial kingdom, but God's going to supernaturally empower Israel to keep it. That's what he says in Jeremiah 31 through 31 through 34. He's going to supernaturally empower. It can't be done otherwise. Verses 5 and 6, back to Galatians. For we through the Spirit wait. Faith produces works with the right motivation. Verse 5, for we through the Spirit wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Jesus Christ neither circumcision availeth anything nor uncircumcision, but faith which worketh by love. The Spirit gives us assurance, doesn't he? We're going to turn up to the next book, just a page or two over probably in your Bible, to Ephesians chapter 1. Tremendous passage of Scripture, and so many times when we look at Ephesians chapter 1, we're looking at the at the uh, spiritual blessings that we have in Christ, when we get to the verses 13 and 14, it's just really tremendous here what the apostle says, where he talks about, okay, you have all these things in Christ, but now I want you, he says, I want you to look at something. Verse 13, in whom? Talking about Christ. Well, verse 12, we'll read that first. That we should be to the praise of his, his glory who first trusted in Christ. We who first trusted in Christ, we bring glory to God. And that's the point. In whom, verse 13, you also trusted, after that you heard the word of truth, which is the gospel of your salvation. And whom, after, after that you believed, you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. You've heard the word. You heard the gospel. You trusted in it. You believed, you trusted in it. You believed it was true, and you put your trust in it. And you were sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise. I think this Holy Spirit of promise here is the Holy Spirit who is sealed and indwells the believer and promises them eternal life. Which, in the earnest of our inheritance, the down payment of our inheritance, is what that means. Until the redemption of the purchased possession of the praise of his glory. In other words, you are sealed until the time of the resurrection. When this old flesh will be completely gone. Now, we struggle with this old flesh, don't we? And we have a position in Christ, don't we? But he says, you are sealed until that day of redemption, when that redemption is complete, totally complete. And you're sealed with it, and the Holy Spirit guarantees it, and he's been given as the inheritance, or excuse me, as the down payment, as the earnest. And we, I don't know, we don't use the term earnest as much as we used to. They still do if you buy houses and things like that. And what is earnest? It's, it's kind of a down payment, but it's, it's a little different than a down payment, because it's earnest money, if you don't follow through and make the purchase, you lose it. The person selling the house, let's use the house, let's use the word used. 
and you say, okay, we're going we're gonna to buy this house. We can get financing. And you make sure, provided we can get financing, then we're going to buy this house. We want some earnest money. Put a few thousand down. Show us your honest, your truth. Show us you mean what you say. So you put $5,000 down. We're going to buy this house. Then you find the house a better deal. You got the financing, you got the loan, but we got a better deal. I'm going to buy this house instead. And so you do. If you do, you lose the $5,000. That's what that's about. Because the seller had to take it off the market and potentially lose a sale. And the realtor potentially would have lost a commission. The Holy Spirit is our earnest, our guarantee. If one blood-bought saint is lost, ends up in the lake of fire, the Holy Spirit has to go there with him. That's what that says. That's how strong it is. God is not going back on his deal. This is the guarantee of his promise that he sent us the Holy Spirit to seal us until the day of redemption. And we can believe that. Romans chapter 5. I'm not going to turn there because of time, but Romans chapter 5 says that we're justified by faith and we stand in grace, don't we? And we access that grace by faith also. And then in verse 3, chapter 5, he says, but tribulation, we know, he says, we glory in tribulation is what he says. And I just, oh, I don't. Because we know, so I know it, but I don't want to believe it. You like the idea of tribulation? Well, Paul says tribulation is a natural, normal part of the Christian's life, and we can glory in tribulation, the trials and troubles when they come our way, whatever they are. Because he says tribulation worketh perseverance, patience, perseverance, or patience, endurance, which worketh in experience, which means character, character quality. What's he doing? Through our tribulations, as we respond spiritually to those in faith and, and, and do it God's way and through his word, then he starts conforming us to the image of Christ. And he says our hope builds, our hope in Christ builds. He says our hope will not disappoint. And what does he mean? He'll not make a shame, how the King James says. He says we'll never be disappointed in the hope that we have because the love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. The love of God shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Romans 5.5. 5. And he begins a section where he talks about what the believer has in Christ. Tells how he got there, you know, through Adam and Christ. The, the, uh, we're all in Adam, but we're all made you know, righteous in Christ and so forth. And then chapter 6, what we looked about, our position in Christ, our unity with Christ. Our, our, uh, and it's a unity, uh, not just a union. We're in Christ, Christ in us, and Christ, uh, us in Christ, and Christ in us. And when he gets to the end of that section, and that's what five, Romans 5, 6, and 7 are about. 8 and 8 are about. When he gets to the end, he says, Nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And those two verses, Romans 5, 5 and 8, 39, are connected. They're connected. All that through there, he says all that through there to establish what he says in 5, 5. Nothing can separate us. Nothing in creation can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord the believer. And let's turn to Romans chapter 8 briefly.
chapter 8, verse 15. Fifteen, for you have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption whereby we cry, Abba, Father. Abba, Father. That's like saying Daddy. Little child. Crawling Father's lap. The Spirit itself bears witness to our spirit that we are the children of God, and of children and heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If so be we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. The Spirit gives us assurance through His sealing and also through His witness. Ephesians, back, back to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15. The Spirit also does a work of illumination. And this is Paul's prayer for the Ephesians. And actually, Paul's prayer for the church, the body of Christ. And it's God's desire. What Paul was expressing was God's desire, wasn't it? For you and for me. This is the word of God. We talk about Paul. It's not Paul. It's God speaking through Paul. And preserved for us in Scripture. And this is God's desire, his heart for you as a believer. For every believer, this prayer, prayer has content and strength. Verse 15, Wherefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and love unto all the saints, cease not to give thanks to you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him the eyes of your understanding being enlightened. This is important to understand. We can study the Bible, we should study the Bible, and people can learn about the Bible, but there's a spiritual context here that if the Spirit does not open your eyes to the truths, and if you're doing it in the flesh, you won't, then there's some things that even as a believer we're going to be mystified by. We're not going to understand. And he says, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened that ye may know what is the hope of his calling and what is the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe according to the working of his mighty power which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead. You want to understand the power that God has available for us to live the Christian life. It's not through the law. It's not through works of the flesh, but it's through the Holy Spirit. And it's an understanding of who we are in Christ and the power, the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. It's understanding that you died with Christ on that cross. When you trusted Christ as your Savior, as far as God's concerned, you died with Christ on that cross 2,000 years ago. And when he was put in the grave, you went with, there with him. And when he was raised, you were raised up with him in holiness and righteousness and the righteousness of God. How does he became him who knew no sin became sin for us so we might become the righteousness of God in him. And I believe that's a righteousness that supersedes the righteousness of Adam. Adam was not created in perfect righteousness. 
sometimes we get the idea. No, he wasn't. He had the opportunity to either believe God and obey or to disobey. The righteousness we have. We're not just put back to where Adam was. Aren't you glad? We're put there with Christ. The righteousness of God is imputed to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Him who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And it's by faith. His righteousness is imputed to us. And we have a, as a present possession and a future reality. In Romans 8, it says that we wait, that we eagerly wait for the adoption to wit, the resurrection of the body. And that's what we look forward to that day when all this flesh, this world will be gone and we're going to have a new and resurrected body and glorious body and we're going to live forever with him. To live with Christ, to die is gain. For the believer to die is to go to glory. And we look forward to the resurrection, don't we? But nothing can separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Stand fast. Stand fast in the grace of God. Believe that. And do not let anyone entangle you in that. Because it's the truth that sets you free. Jesus Christ is enough. And he's done at all. Father, we thank you. Thank you for the grace you've given us in the Lord Jesus Christ and for the salvation we have and the position we have as believers in Christ. And we thank you, Lord, for the goodness you've shown us in him. Matchless grace by a perfect Savior who lived today as the one mediator between God and men. We give you the praise and the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. I had to finish for the tape, and Pastor Ken was saying stop. <laughs> but I want to say before I step down, if you're here tonight, if you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, belonging to a Grace Church won't save you. I've known people who were in Grace Churches for many years and were lost. Regardless of what kind of a church or what kind of a background or what kind of upbringing you've ever had, your family, history, or tradition, it's only faith in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So well, I've heard that many times. Maybe. But have you ever believed it?